The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Foster, a senior writer at Barron's. Thanks so much for joining us for another timely conversation. I'm really delighted to have Joe Davis as my guest today. Joe is Vanguard's global chief economist and the global head of the firm's investment strategy group. Welcome, Joe. Oh, thanks, Lauren. Thanks for having me. Uh, It's great to have you uh, on the show today, Joe. So let's just dive right in with the news of the day. The CPI report out this morning showed inflation remains stubbornly high, and the Federal Reserve is facing what looks like an increasingly difficult choice between balancing inflation and growth. Now, you penned a note recently where you said that historically, bouts of high inflation are quickly followed by recession and widespread job losses. We saw stagflation in the 1970s and the early 1980s. So what are the risks that history repeats itself? Well, thanks, Lauren. It's, an, it's I think it's really a, a profound question. You know, I think uh, with respect to inflation, you know, there, there's, there's two issues going on, which uh, has certain, certainly important implications for the markets, the economy, and what the Federal Reserve, if we use the U.S. as an example, what the, what the, the Fed may need to do in the months and quarters ahead. I mean, I, you know, what history shows clearly is that when inflation rises uh, beyond some, you know, uh, very high threshold, that there's naturally demand destruction. Um, that's typically tied to commodity uh, commodity price pressures. We obviously have seen that with gasoline. Food prices are growing at a double-digit rate uh, for, for all consumers. And so, um, you know, that's going on. But at the same time, what we don't always see, but we certainly saw in the 1970s, uh, and that was a, a strong labor market that was driving up wage pressures. Now, for a time, that may help families and workers um, sustain uh, and afford those other price pressures and commodities and you know necessary uh, sort of products. At the same time, that means that the, the likelihood that inflation persists beyond the commodity price uh, spike increases. And, you know, so, you know, how, how I think investors should think through this is, you know, the food and energy price pressures that we continue to see, that in of itself, um, central banks can only not really do much about. They really shouldn't react to it, um, in part because that tends to be uh, inflationary for a time, but it also leads to much slower growth. Um, so although a very unfortunate environment, it tends to be so much short-lived. Uh, and what we focused uh, for clients at Vanguard is to really focus on uh, the strength and in, in the broadening uh, of, of wage pressures and uh, other pressures. We see, in fact, we saw that in today's CPI release. So what this says is that monetary policy should be should be calibrated to ensure uh, that, that the broad-based price pressures uh, that we don't see. And so what, what that that has told us for some time is that the Federal Reserve is going to have to raise rates um, more aggressively than I think the bond market, at least at the beginning of the year, was prepared for. And so we would view, you know, roughly 4% as, as the floor in terms of the Federal Reserve will need to take short-term interest rates 
because of the broadening in price pressures. Um, and so that's effectively, I think, the, the scenario that's now increasingly being considered by the markets. So we titled the episode, uh, you know, a U.S. recession is looming. And of course, the, that's the big question everyone is sort of wondering is when, if uh, a recession will take place. And your September outlook put the odds of a U.S. recession, I believe it was 25% in the next 12 months and about 65% in, in the next 24 months. So just talk us through your scenario for, for a recession in the U.S., Sure, Lauren. And again, there was a lot of con- there's been a lot of conversation. Is the U.S. economy all in recession already in recession? Um, uh, the, the the short answer is no. Um, you know, I, although the odds, you know, something could happen before the end of the year. One of the primary the, the primary catalysts for a recession historically have been one or twofold. One is the first price pressure I mentioned: food and energy prices. Let's use oil as just an example. Uh, rise at a very quick uh, pace, uh, so much so that it really derails economic activity. Uh, although the food and energy prices have been significant in their increase, they are not, believe it or not, they are not sufficient in of itself to drive the U.S. economy into recession. Um, it doesn't mean it makes the price pressures pleasant, but it's just not enough by itself, which then raises, you know, the, the, the primary cause for a recession would be um, the central bank, in this case the Federal Reserve, would have to take short-term borrowing costs to, the, to, to a, re, a restrictive enough level um, that it actually makes you know, consumers, businesses postpone current, current purchases. I mean, that's the whole intent of trying to slow down inflation. And um, history shows and our analysis you know, supports the fact that the, the, federal, the, the Fed funds rate or the short-term interest rate has to get above the rate of inflation. And so, you know, that, 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 that implies that it's, it's unlikely that a recession would manifest itself in the very near term because the Fed funds rate, although the Fed has been very aggressive in their interest rate hikes, um, they're still below 3% today. Uh, that, won't, that won't last long, but, you know, uh, inflation is certainly well above that. And so to, 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 to be the primary catalyst of recession, if that is Fed tightening, then we're just not there yet. And, you know, even, even the U.S. Treasury yield curve is, has not been formally inverted. Um, but, again, that's why we, we see the odds increasing in 2023, because we, we think the Federal Reserve will eventually take interest rates above that rate of core inflation, uh, really to cool down these broadening uh, price pressures. Can we just touch a little bit on, on the strength of the labor market? Um, you know, one of the points in your recent uh, uh, post that you put out was, uh, I guess, a job full recession or a full job recession, what does that look like? Well, and again, you know, you know, every recession is different, Lauren. And, you know, the, generally a recession, you know, it's certainly not welcome news if one loses one's job or if your business activity, your sales or revenues uh, decline for a time. Uh, there's recessions where the, 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 the contraction and, you know, activity, sales, revenues are worse than the, than the job displacement and vice versa. It really depends in part because of the source of the recession and the momentum going in. I mean, our, 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 our calculations and our outlook is that although, you know, we will very likely need to see a, a modest rise in the unemployment rate, if not, we have some of these broadening wage uh, sort of price pressures that, that we're starting to see, uh, that will need to occur. Uh, but given the fact of labor demand intrinsically is extremely robust, which is why I think we have, you know, two roughly two openings for every unemployed individual. That's a very high ratio, and 
given the COVID experience that many businesses face from having, you know, shut down activity to then having difficulty locating workers, if you believe that the slowdown is temporary, but the demand longer term for, for workers is high, I think there will be less willingness uh, to pursue the sort of mass layoffs, at least on a broad-based perspective that, you know, in other t- downturns you may have seen more significantly. Well, I'm sure that's good news to many who are wondering about their, their job security in the near term. Um, I just want to remind the audience that uh, if you have questions for Joe, please do submit them uh, through the Q&A feature. I'll be definitely leaving some time at the end to go through audience questions. So, you know, Joe, the Federal Reserve meets again uh, next week. And I guess today's report makes clear that the Fed has more work to do to bring inflation back to 2%. And I guess it all but guarantees the central bank will raise interest rates by you know three quarters of a point or 75 basis points next week is that also what you're expecting uh yes and you know it won't uh you know and, and that won't be the end of of the fed interest rate cycle and um again i i think it's you know i think that the 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 most important question the bond market has been has been and the financial markets have been trying to ascertain is you know how much of this inflation pressure is demand related versus supply uh, the answer to that is roughly, you know, demand. Well, 50% is demand related, which means that you're going to need to be more restrictive in policy. Then the second question is, at what level do you have to raise rates without really, you know, um, you know, uh, curtailing the economy? And that's again where we come to um, our evidence for some time. Our projections have had the Federal Reserve taking the rates to 4%. That seemed like a stretch, I think, um, by the markets. You know, certainly months ago, that seems much more like, I think, a, a mainstream expectation. So I, I think, you know, we haven't, we haven't changed that forecast materially since then. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, that would suggest that by the end of the year, the Federal Reserve could very well be at the 4% Fed fund rate. And again, that, that would be a market change, right, where uh, there was, um, you know, fears years ago that the Federal Reserve couldn't raise rates beyond 1% or 2% without really slowing down economic activity. It's amazing how, you know, in some ways the narrative has changed, Lauren, because now it's much more, is that sufficient to slow down some of the price pressures we have? Mm-hmm. So as the audience heard, I guess, in the intro, you straddle two roles. You know, you're chief economist, but you're also head of investment strategy. So let's shift this conversation into what all of this means for investors and their portfolios. And something we've heard a lot about this year is, you know, the 60-40 portfolio, the very traditional asset allocation, and how poorly it's performed. And so there have been lots of people wondering, you know, is the 60-40 portfolio dead? So let me put that to you. What's your view on the 60-40 portfolio? And I guess, very importantly, how should investors be best positioned to weather the storm that's coming uh, down the road? And I appreciate the question, Lauren. You know, and again, it may not be the asset allocation many on the call or your podcast may have, but it's a, it's a common sort of benchmark, 60%, meaning, let's say, a global equity portfolio, 40% in some high-quality fixed-income portfolio, um, primarily for diversification reasons and also some income. Um, you know, as, as you noted, the first half of 2022 uh, had significant um, negative returns for both the stock and the bond uh, component of that portfolio. And so uh, that was extremely unusual. Um, it had happened before, but it's, it's very atypical and, and certainly unpleasant. Uh, which then has given rise to, A, what's going on, uh, why did this happen, and then, B, would it happen again? 
Um, the biggest reason why um, it has happened and why we have seen it on occasion in the past is when you have a period of rapid, uh, quickly rising interest rates tied to rising and higher than expected inflation. And, if that's, and of course, if that sounds familiar to everyone, that's because that's precisely the environment we had have have had the first six months. Um, and so you tend to have, you know, uh, stocks fall because of the, you know, the sort of barring expected future cash flow is not as valuable given a rising rate environment. And then, of course, bond portfolios are resetting to higher interest rates, but there's a principal loss for a time, um, you know, before the income uh, stream uh, resets at a higher level. And so um, that has happened before. Um, now, the question is, would it happen again? Um, it is certainly possible, but again, it would have to be a repeat of the very uh, situation we have had, with meaning it's not, it wouldn't be sufficient to say, well, inflation will remain high, hence we will have bond losses. That actually would, it would have to be, that's not necessarily, that's, that's not sufficient. What we would need to see is an environment of inflation high and rising higher than expected, which then leads to um, you know, uh, faster in interest rate rises, because it would be by definition a surprise. Um, I think the one thing that's important, um, at least for, for, for myself and my investing personal life, is, is to keep in mind that, um, particularly on the fixed income side, um, uh, that, that, that the bond portfolios have a built-in, what I would call a defense mechanism. Now, it doesn't prevent at any, you know, at any point that there's the one's not going to have volatility in portfolio and, and losses for a time, but the very fact that interest rates are rising ultimately leads to higher income payments. Um, um, and so in the long run, the rate of inflation is actually immaterial to 60-40 investors because the, the, the interest rate level just resets. Now, what, what is unpleasant is the, is the transition from point A to point B, and that's where we were in the first half of the year. So um, the, 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 one, the one side effect of the volatility that, that we've had, and again, it's been you know, more than typical, is that the expected returns – uh, for our simulations for equity portfolios as well as for fixed income portfolios, for the first time in 10 years, our longer-term expected returns are starting to inch up. And it's not, it's not a surprise as to why that's happening. It's because of the interest rates starting to rise at the short end, you know, short-term interest rates tied by the Federal Reserve, as well as the bond market. And so, again, it's an unpleasant sort of transition um, but that, you know, this was an environment that, that for several years we were concerned that there was, there was a, pr a probability, an elevated probability that we'd, we'd have some downturn in the markets because valuations were very high, interest rates were extremely low, but that doesn't necessarily change one's investment strategy. It just means that we may go through a period of turbulence. I would like to think that we're towards the end of it, but I think I'd be naive to think mm -hmm. that we're completely done with some of the market volatility that, that we've experienced this year. Yeah. So let's spend a few more minutes just uh, on bonds. You know, as you've alluded, it's been a pretty harrowing uh, past few months. And so a lot of people are wondering about the role of bonds in a portfolio and how they should be allocating. So talk us through a little bit about uh, thinking through duration, you know, short duration versus long duration and, and how investors should be thinking through their portfolios in terms of bond allocation. Yeah, it's a really good question. You know, and I, I think there's a lot to uh, to unpack there, Lauren. I would say you know, several things to at least keep in mind or to consider. One is, it, uh, you know, when I get asked this question, it's just as important to ask a follow-up question, which is, you know, what are the other assets in one's portfolio? In other words, what's the primary role of fixed income in the portfolio? Is it to sort of diversify 
um, some of the higher volatile assets, let's just use stocks as an example, but there could be others. Is it a source of more of a savings and a liquidity uh, sort of threshold, which would, of course, would suggest a lower duration, um, where you're trying to kind of sort of balance those two needs, which kind of then leads you to a, a, you know, a medium duration, a sort of, sort of benchmark-like duration in one's portfolio, right? And so I think one, investors have a trade-off to make, is they're trying to, to, to trade off slightly higher income, which tends to go with, with higher duration, right? The higher duration, the higher the yield, because there's risk involved in, in locking up one's investment longer term for the fixed income security, combining that, you know, so you're trading off that income with higher short-term volatility because by definition, duration, the higher the duration, the more volatility you're going to have when interest rates move up uh, or down. Um, and so I think that's, you know, as a, as a, general, as a general rule of thumb, you know, um, and that, that's where I think, I think some, I get a lot of questions today with, like, say, should I have my investments in cash versus long-term interest rates? On, from a strategic perspective, um, you know, by doing so, keeping, for example, one's uh, portfolio in cash versus fixed income, all else equal, you're generally going to give up around 100 to 150 basis points, one to one to one point five percentage points, in expected return uh, by keeping it in cash uh, versus fixed income because of what's called upward sloping, uh, you know, yield curves. Uh, the the more the longer the interest rate on the bond, the the, the duration of the bond, the higher the expected return should be. Um, so that's that's still the calculus today, uh, and I think that's still the the the, the choice facing investors. So I used the word harrowing a few moments ago to describe, I guess, the bond market, but it could equally be applied to to the equity market. We've seen a lot of volatility, a lot of whipsawing. Uh, we thought the worst was behind us and then things sort of go up and down again. So I'm just wondering, you know, do you think are we over the worst or, or what's your outlook for stocks in the coming uh, months and, and where are you seeing downside risk in the market? Well, I think it's a really good question. You know, I, as I said, I think there's, um, you know, there, there's dual realities here. I, I think in one sense, the encouraging sign is that, um, you know, some of these, ex, you know, the expected return um, simulations that we run and we disclose them on our website for listeners, investors, and we do that on a continual basis. Um, they've started to inch up on, on a strategic basis. So what does strategic mean? Certainly beyond the next five years. Um, you know, some some of the, the, you know, part of that is because of short-term interest rates getting a, a, above the zero bound and valuations, at least those that were the, the priciest or those that were the, the most stretched for two or three years, which, again, we were trying to say, listen, there were, some of these parts of the financial markets had grown pretty uh, frothy. Um, less profitable uh, technology companies, all else equal, or growth stocks were, were exhibit A of that. And we were um, just, just cautioning investors not to overdo it in some sense. Um, and, of course, since that time, we've seen a significant underperformance of that part of the market. Um, so I think some of those excesses are, are sort of um, you know, winding uh, up in a good way. So that, that would suggest that expected returns Longer term, in part because we've had to endure, you know, we've had to endure that volatility, right, Lauren? It hasn't been this bit a pleasant ride, and we've had to endure it. Um, but that's a resetting to a higher level. Um, the, the, that said, I, I think it would be naive to think that the, the volatility is, is completely over. I would like to think so, um, but um, I don't think the odds of recession, although there certainly aren't 
those odds of recession may not be fully priced into the equity markets. Uh, I think earnings uh, estimates are, seem a little high. I hope they're right, but I think they're unlikely to be. And so that means that we may, you know, you, you, you could have a, a subtly a uh, little bit more um, volatility in the financial markets. Uh, our indicators, which are the foundation for our long-run expected returns, are useful in at least suggesting when there's um, risk, asymmetric risk in the market. And um, for two years, they were suggesting that that, that, that markets were, were somewhat overvalued. Now, when that happens and we see a correction, we tend to drop what's called below fair value, uh, which the markets always go above or below fair value. They rarely are ever perfectly in, in equilibrium. And we have yet to drop below that fair value level. So that's not to say we couldn't ha- it couldn't happen, and we kind of have seen the worst of the volatility. But um, um, my my, you know, I, I think we just are in store for a little bit more, mm-hmm. um, you know, in, in in coming months. Now, what would the catalyst be for that? I mean, so obviously something truly a surprise and exogenous. We had the unfortunate developments with Russia and Ukraine. Um, you know, going back into uh, earlier the year and, and year past. So that was obviously something in, uh, unpleasant and unforeseen. It could be s- something tied to, to, to more restrictive monetary policy. Um, I would probably just go to the, to the extent or the nature of the downturn and, 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 and earnings estimates being revised. That, that does not have to be, you know, significantly negative, but it could lead to a little bit greater reset in the stock market. You mentioned the war in Ukraine, and obviously it's quite a a pall has been cast over Europe, and we're certainly seeing surging inflation. I think the UK has probably double-digit inflation at this point. I know Germany has high inflation. Some investors uh, think there is still, uh, you know, investments to be made in Europe. There are still bargains to be found. But I'm wondering what your outlook is for Europe at this moment. Well, you know, on a longer-term basis, uh, you know, most markets outside the U.S. have higher expected return. That's in large part to the points you mentioned, Lauren. Um, you know, where valuations um, uh, are just a little bit more compelling, even if their economic growth outlook is is no stronger than the U.S. You know, much more important than growth per se is the price paid for growth for long-term investors. Um, that's why value-based companies tend to outperform growth companies, even though they grow at half the rate. Um, it's that sort of uh, sort of mechanism. Um, so that dynamic is there, but um, you know it's also prepared to be have that longer term orientation because I know at Vanguard we won't be able to, we certainly won't be smart enough to 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 to, to come into the timing. Um, but I think that's a natural sort of environment that we all have to at least acknowledge and respect, right? Mm-hmm. Valuation sort of frameworks can be helpful in not following too much momentum in the markets and can be a source of uh, longer-term conviction and strength. But it also, I think, opens the door to acknowledging that, um, you know, you're never going to pick those turning points, right? And uh, But I think it's a very helpful framework for what is a, a reasonable range of expected returns in the next five or ten years. Yeah. Um, generally, they're up. And they generally want to point you to two areas. Uh, they actually want to point you outside of the U.S., not to say you, you, you sell your U.S. investments, it's just that they've outperformed the non-U.S. investments by, by an order of magnitude, most of that through multiple expansion. And then the other one is actually back into fixed income securities, not to run uh, completely away from them because of the, that natural defense mechanism that I talked about. 
We've got quite a lot of questions coming in from the audience, Joe. But before we go to the audience questions, I just wanted to ask you, you know, we started out talking about inflation. And so one obvious question I should ask you is, you know, how should investors be thinking about inflation protection in their portfolios? That, that, that's a really good question. I think to try to, to try to simplify it, I would say it really depends upon how we define inflation protection. Um, if one thinks about over, over a medium to long period, uh, say for their personal portfolio, for their spending needs, for their family, whatever it is for their institution, if it's that their portfolio, that they want that portfolio's value to outpace the, the, the rate of the CPI, regardless of what the rate of the CPI is over the next 10, 15, 20 years, if they want to effectively have a real or inflation-adjusted positive return, then that definitely points you to um, equity-like investments. Um, the history is pretty clear, it's, and, it, and it's consistent with a real earnings uh, growth of, of, of claims on capital. Um, uh, however, you know, the, that, that opens one to, to that reset risk of interest rates rising as inflation expectations rise or, or higher than expected for a time, Lauren, right? So the very strongest long-run inflation-protected, I would call real uh, return vehicles, tend to actually have a negative correlation with rising inflation in the near term. But this is all about trade-offs. There's other investments by their design have a very high correlation in short-term inflation bouts. Those um, investments tend to include um, commodity futures. They certainly include inflation-protected securities and even uh, cash. So money market-like vehicles and bank CDs, uh, they tend to go up with inflation rather than down uh, in short-term periods. However, those investments, generally speaking, come at a cost, and that is much lower long-run expected returns over the rate of inflation. So there's this trade-off in terms of inflation protection. One's long horizon. You have to bear with the fact that in a rising, rate in, a rising in, uh, inflation environment, your, 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 your investments may seem like they're not keeping up, but it's that natural reset mechanism that in the long run um, helps preserve uh, you know, one's corpus and one's purchasing power. Conversely, if one's trying to immunize one's portfolio to those short-term inflation shocks, I'll think of maybe a conservative or older investor who may be drawing down from their portfolio, um, uh, then, then that may skew you towards more pres preserving a principle rather than trying to grow the principle. So inflation protection thinks of it generally in those two buckets. Then, you, you know, then of course, you may have investors or institutions that are trying to do both, and that leads you to a blend. But generally, that's how we think of inflation protection. Focus on the horizon over which you're trying to outpace or protect yourself from inflation. And if you can answer that question, that'll lead you to potentially where you uh, adjust your portfolio depending upon that answer. Great. Well, I just want to say thank you to the audience. We've got lots of great questions, and I'm going to try my best to squeeze in as many as I can in our remaining time. So first off, um, Kurt asks, where do you see inflation 12 and 24 months out? A good question. Um, you know, our, our central tendency a, a year from out, it will certainly be lower, um, uh, but it will still be elevated and above where uh, anyone I would think would, would say comfortable. So we have it roughly 4%, depends on the market. I'll use the U.S. as just an example, um, roughly 4% um, 12 months from now. It then comes down. Uh, it, it are, are, we are showing that it will be a little bit stickier then I think the markets would like, but it will be definitely lower than today's unpleasant and too high of a level. 
Um, and the reason why it will continue to come down, it's not that we will just, it will magically come down on its own. I think we will see some pl- supply chains ease to some extent as demand cools. The second one, though, is the restrictive policy. Um, you know, at the end of the day, I think history, though, is clear. It, sometimes it takes some time, and certain central banks certainly may have been late to the game. But uh, history does show that when a central bank aims to achieve their objective, they generally get what they want. And so I, I think we're seeing that in long-term inflation expectations, not matching, you know, uh, not expecting this to continue uh, for, for a number of years, um, which wasn't the case, by the way, in the 1970s. Um, so it will be lower, but it won't just magically come down on its own. That's one of the reasons why I think we're seeing central banks uh, being more aggressive to ensure that everyone on this call – does not expect CPI three years from now be at the same level it is today. If that, if we all had those expectations, then interest rates have to go maturely higher to undercut that sort of spiral in expectations. Great. Thanks, Joe. So Jeff asks, what rate do you expect the 10-year Treasury to be at this time next year? Well, I, I think it's, you know, in large part, it's not the only driver, you know, short-term interest rates and what the Fed does doesn't control, you know, everything that the, the long-term, the 10-year or the long end curve, so to speak, does. Um, this would suggest modest upward pressure. I think the forward, the Treasury market itself expects that. I think it's been resetting as the Federal Reserve uh, looks increasingly like taking rates to, to at least what we thought could happen, which was 4%. Um, and, and if we're right that the, the risk of recession is elevated, then long-term interest rates uh, may not rise as much as short-term interest rates, um, which means it's a, that's a cryptic way for me to say that the yield curve will invert more significantly than what it currently may do. Uh, but I think we'll see. Um, you know, long-term interest rates, it's, it's trying to price out not only what the Fed does this year, but it's also what it does after that. Um, and so I, I think... It's tough for me to see interest rates, long-term interest rates, rising materially higher from here because of the negative effect at least would have in the near term on the housing market um, and other parts of, uh, uh, in terms of borrowing costs. So Douglas wonders, is it possible that some modest level of inflation has already entrenched itself in the U.S. economy, making the 2% target rate out of reach? Well, I think that's a really good question. I mean, uh, what we 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 were concerned of that of the of the fact that central banks, I think, were underestimating the wage pressures, which gets the labor market tightness, and that gets to this wage price uh, link, which we are seeing in the service-based sector of the economy. So think of things such as the prices for tuition, medical care, uh, other things tied to the service economy. Those were not rising nearly the much like we've seen in food and energy, but they're starting to rise. And so um, I think there is a bit of a wage price uh, dynamic, uh, even if it's not expected to last. That's why I think we've seen a, a significant pivot from central banks. So what they're trying to do is, is thread, thread this needle. And to be fair, it's really tough for anyone to do this, right? They're trying to tamp down those price pressures from continuing but they're trying not to do so in a way that materially undercuts the labor market strength. Um, I think you know the probability of navigating that is 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 difficult, uh, and they would need some good luck on the supply side, so that they don't have to be as heavy-handed on the demand side, uh, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So Ed wonders how do recessions correlate to stock market movements historically, and how might this recession, if indeed it happens affect the markets? 
That's another really good question. So I'll say something that sound that sounds crazy, but uh, believe me, it's true. Um, and that is, on average, the stock the stock market uh, has the same exp- has the same return in recessions as in out of recessions. Same exact. Now, how does that happen? It's like everything in life. It's all about timing, um, because stocks, like other investments, tend to be a forward-looking mechanism of what actually will happen in the economy. They tend to underperform, and perhaps even bear markets tend to lead recessions, um, and then they start to recover uh, long before the economy itself is officially declared out of recession. So it's not that recessions don't matter; it's just that when you actually, to, to you know, specifically to your question, Laura, and to the to the, to the listener's question, you see that, um, uh, and so that I think that which gets to the point of around. Um, I know there's some, I have some friends and colleagues outside of work that ask me, you know, well, isn't it just better be in cash here for a time? Joe, you're saying that the, the risk of recession is elevated. Can I just park it in cash and try to like, kind of ride it out? The only say I say the risk to that is, is, is twofold. And one is, one, I would just ask, I ask my friends and colleagues, I said, have a very clear re-enter strategy. Because if you're waiting for the all clear sign on the economic front, you may have sidestepped some modest volatility on the downside. You also just missed the upside, effectively roughly half of the long-term stock return. Because what we know is that um, volatility, formally, academically, it's called clustering, which means during the very turning points, bad days are followed by bad days for a time and then good days. Um, And so if one is out of the markets, you may sidestep some of the downside risk, but unfortunately you miss the upside risk. So in many ways, point point, a lot of that timing doesn't really add any value at all. And then the you know the risk is one waits too long. This happened you know to some investors, not all, but it happened to some investors in 2008 during the global financial crisis. The economy took a long time to heal, but the financial markets uh, turned long before that. And so some of the strongest returns we saw from again very deep losses were during the early days of the recovery. And so I think that's just important, at least to acknowledge if one is is thinking about that um, with respect to the outlook. Great. Well, we've still got questions flooding in, so I'm going to try to get maybe two or three more in, Joe, if that's okay with you. Um, Jeremy asks, how has the recent inflation pressures changed Vanguard's long-term outlook on equities and fixed income? Well, I think it's related to my previous comments. I mean, what it has done at the, so again, just as context, you know, we our 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 average outlook, even though we run you know thousands of simulations as a distribution for clients um, and for our own our own sort of um, you know provisions uh, and analysis we do, um, it had to certain assumptions even going back you know a number of years. Uh, in the past several years, that assumption was twofold. One is that we were likely in a period of lower expected returns coming. We did not know the catalyst nor the actual you know, tipping point, but valuations and uh, in interest rates combined that. Secondly, um, that, that, that we would see ultimately a rise in inflation-adjusted or what I call real interest rates, um, that, they were, um, that they were not permanently going to be in this low environment forever. So that gave us two things. That gave us the fact that there was, you know, modest downside risk to the markets. Let's not be overly aggressive here. One wants to stay invested, but just be prepared for a period of market volatility. Now, none of us at Vanguard thought there was a, a, you know, a pandemic coming. That's that's not something anyone could forecast. 
but that's given us conviction since this time uh, to the specific to the question. Our expected returns are starting to modestly improve. And it's not just simply because markets are down. Markets can always fall further. It's the fact of why they're falling. The fact that real interest rates are starting to rise, we had an assumption or an expectation that what some called secular stagnation, that interest rates were going to be negative, net of inflation in every market, uh, and tied to the zero bound as far as the eye could see. We were skeptical given our, our deeper macro uh, research, uh, that they would not always persist given what had been driving them. And so that that's a modest uh, silver lining um, to the current uh, situation we're in, which is there's cross currents on the global economy. Uh, we've seen you know some of the froth unwind, uh, but we may see have a little bit more volatility in store as the fundamentals you know, are, are buffeted by some of these shocks. Great. Now Craig asks, what do you see the impact on oil in the coming months, and how will raising rates impact the price per barrel? Uh, well, in terms of the second uh, component of that question, um, it's it's tough to see if there's a, if there's a link to you know short-term interest rates on oil. It's 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 only indirect and in what that does to global demand. Um, uh, again, um, oil, generally speaking, um, you know, has some challenges on the supply side, just in terms of uh, I think some of the investment, which may not have been as strong uh, to keep up with some of the demand, which is still you know growing. Um, on average. Um, at the same time, I think the recent drop has clearly been um, a positive consumer sentiment. Um, we never got to the oil price that was a strike point uh, for a recession in itself. For the United States, believe it or not, that's that's north of $150 a barrel to generate a recession, um, all else equal. And so, you know, if we're hovering at $85 a barrel t today, that, that suggests that obviously um, you know, that's one of the reasons why I think we've seen some stabilization in financial conditions. That's less of a tax uh, than what it had been. So, you know, what, what its outlook does over in the years ahead, it's, I think there's this, there's this competition between, um, you know, the, re, the investment um, in, in oil um, and, its, and its use in energy uh, combined with the, the, the changes potentially we'll see in energy consumption. So, um, uh, it remains to be seen, you know, if, the, if that sort of imbalance. Um, I, I would say just more of structurally, regardless of how energy usage plays out in the decades ahead, the need for investment is significant. Um, I think that's a, obviously a positive in terms of uh, returns on capital, but it is uh, the, the, the investment, regardless of how invest, uh, energy is actually generated, uh, the need for investment at the global, at, at the global level is pretty significant. Great. So I'm squeezing one last question in a minute or less. Um, and I apologize to the audience for those of you who sent in questions. There are lots of great questions. We just couldn't get to them all. Um, so in a minute or less, Joe, David asks, uh, what sectors would you anticipate being more in favor in the current economic environment? And how much of a portfolio should be in international investments at this point as well? Well, I'd say for international, just, you know, certainly don't for, you know, you, you want to have some exposure. Um, it's for diversification, and it's also the fact that, that you know, the, 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 you know uh, those returns are not in lockstep with the, with the U.S., and acknowledging the U.S. has outperformed. That will not always continue, as far as I can see, and that's not being bearish on the U.S. economy. That's just a, a market assessment. Um, and then, again, I think it's being, um, that valuations do matter for long-term investors, and so, 
you know, there's parts of the market that rel I would I would try to zoom back if you're going to look in recent performance to help guide those decisions. Look back at 10 years or more. I think the the closer you look in trailing returns, the noisier it is. Um, and so I think that would look start there in terms of thinking about areas that that may have a a modest risk of outperformance in the years ahead. It will tend to skew you a little bit more value oriented, um, perhaps less so than would have said a year ago. Joe, it's been a terrific conversation. I wish we could carry on, but that's all we have time for today. Um, thank you so much for joining me uh, on the show. Thanks to the audience for tuning in. We hope you can join us again tomorrow when Market Watch Retirement Reporter Alessandra Malito and Burke Sestock, a certified financial planner at Retirement Wealth Partners, will discuss how borrowers should balance paying down the rest of their debt and saving for retirement or how to prioritize that extra cash flow if their loans have been wiped clean. Thank you for listening. Be well and have a wonderful day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.